Well, welcome, Kevin Livingston, to the uh, premiere of the Outer Line retrospective, sort of a look at some of the uh, newsmakers of years past and uh, in the sport of cycling. And uh, Kevin, first, welcome. This is the maiden ship for the podcast on the Outer Line. Thanks, Steve. I, well, I didn't, I didn't realize that, the premiere. All right. No pressure. So people might say, well, why Kevin Livingston? And I say, why not? There you go. We have a little history too, though. So we know each other pretty well. Exactly. So what have you been up to? I think, you know, when you look back at Kevin Livingston's career, you know, people remember him, obviously, as an elite road rider. They remember him for coming up and, uh, you know, through the ranks on development teams, going on to a pretty stellar pro career. And uh, looking back, how do you view your career? And uh, what do you think was sort of the apex of your career? What, that's kind of a big word for me, Steve. <laughs> would that be the peak of my career? That would be the summit. That would be the king of the mountain. That would be the- The coal you know, or the summit? There's a lot of debate there. That's true. Uh, how about the summit? All right. Uh, a pretty loaded question. Maybe you have to, um, you know, when I immediate kind of reaction when you ask that question is thinking back, it's been, you know, it's been about almost 20 years since I, 18 years since I retired. Remember when I first stopped racing, I, I sort of had this, uh, counter going where I would be like, okay, it's only been one year since you've been retired. Like everything, you're still close to your pro career. It's only been two years. You're not, you know, you're not getting that old. All of a sudden I'm like, whoa, I'm, you know, my kids are older. I'm like, it's been 18 years. I think initially I, I, I think a little bit about how, I, um, you know, I stopped pretty young, you know, when I look back, uh, I ended my career at like 29, I wasn't even 30. Uh, so that's, that's always something. And I think I found that people did seem curious about that. Why, why did I stop, you know, at 30 or, uh, you know, why didn't I race a little longer? Now, obviously, I thought about that too later. But um, um, yeah, and just going back, I don't, uh, well, touching on just stopping, you know, I think, I can't explain. I know when I was younger, I kind of had this idea that I don't know why that I would race till I was like 30. And that just seemed at the time what a lot of guys were racing to that I followed or, and I don't know if I just, that was kind of self-fulfilling or, um, but then, and then too, you know, just where I was at that time with, with racing and with my life and like, you know, my have, definitely having children and having my daughter, you know, huge just part of that decision changed my life. Um, what I tell people a lot is it, it was just more of like a gut thing to stop. Like I can't really explain everything. And it was just a culmination of things. And um, basically I, I say like flying off the side of the mountain was no longer meant it you know meant for me to to keep doing it you know it's a it's a dangerous sport so uh you had uh you know a interesting career where you were on the american team right and then you went over and almost was viewed you know like a little bit of a darth vader figure like hey you're going to the dark side over here and so looking back on that experience and then riding for ulrich you know in uh in the tour what was that like you know as an american um, yeah, I mean, that definitely was a interesting time, you know, being on those first two winning uh, Tour de France teams with Lance and then, 
you know, a lot of, um, obviously there were a lot of questions about why I left the team. And, you know, at that time, I, I look back, you know, I, I sort of explained it. Like I have, I had an ego too. Like I know, you know, Lance comes under a lot of, uh, um, you know, scrutiny for just obviously how it's, it's out, it's out, you know, how people, various people have been treated or the, um, out in the public, the, some of the problems that, you know, he's had with other people. But at that time, I think a lot of people thought that I, him and I had this big falling out and that, um, but it was really more, I, I felt like I had proven myself in the team that I had value and that I really didn't need to go to Lance to ask to be on the team. And that wasn't it either. They offered me a, you know, they offered me a three-year contract and, um, but I was getting better offers. I got better offers from other teams. And uh, I just, yeah, I felt like I'd proved myself. I didn't need to go asking to stay. And I also, I also, you know, looking back, I had a lot of time to reflect, you know, on those times. And it, it also was his team, you know, I don't blame him. We were two years, he had the same guys, you know, it, it's kind of rare you get like the same nationality of guys too. You know, we had a big American uh, presence in that team that was strong and that was helping him win those tours. And if I was him, I would have been a little nervous too that eventually guys aren't going to be able to keep keep up that level of performance. Um, so it was his team; he could do what he wanted, and it's not like I got kicked out of it or anything. I just I I uh, made a professional decision. I had a you know I had an ego, like I said, about my what my role was. I was proud of what I felt like I was capable of. So I feel like I got a little lucky because I tried to jump to another team. It was a smaller team, that Linda McCartney program. You remember that? Pretty soon after I'd sort of officially signed that they they already weren't paying riders and there were all these problems. So I I got to work on breaking that contract. And um, once I broke that contract, I had a friend who he had been my agent before and he put out some feelers to other teams. And kind of fortunately for me, um, uh, Telecom was in, you know, it was right after the Vuelta. And the team had gotten a little nervous. They, they weren't very, um, totally happy with all the support. They felt like Jan needed more support in the mountains. You know, like. And so it was like kind of perfect timing when we when I made that jump and needed a team, you know. So uh, I talked to a couple other teams as well. But the telecom was, uh, you know, it felt good. Like they really wanted me and they, uh, you know, made me a great offer. And it was a great team. They took really good care of me. I. It was cool to go to that team, you know, because it still sounds funny, but you're 27, 28 years old. But you grew up as a kid, like looking at these cool, like foreign teams and, you know, like even just the cycling kit and the bike and like you still got excited about things like that. And it was a different experience. And I was a bit of a novelty. I was the first Anglo speaking rider in the team. So they, there was a lot of curiosity, I think, about me having me in the team. First of all, you, of course, you have to have someone who's strong enough to be the, to wear the yellow jersey, and that was the way, that was Lance. And then you need, uh, Lance needs some, some support from his teammates. You look back, your friendship with Lance, which was probably deeper than the the average cat coming up in that program. I mean, between you and Chan, it's arguably you were as tight with Lance as anybody coming in through the ranks you know, as uh, early as probably 17 and 18 year olds on that Skittles team. Um, was that strained at all when you uh, made that 
that jump over to telecom or, or did you say it was, hey, it was just a business decision. Everybody understood it at that time. No, it, yeah, no, for sure it was strained. I mean, let's be, you know, we, we'd had a, like a really good relationship, but as you know, through that second tour, it just could kind of feel things changing a little bit. And um, like I said, me just, I think too, not going, you know, really not wanting to go along with the plan of what, I guess, like I, like I said, they gave me the offer, but I sort of made a decision to move away. And I mean, I kind of think at that period, you know, he's going on to win another five tours after that. Like, it's kind of like, well, what do you expect, you know? And it wasn't, I don't know, it might've been a year later or, or later the next year in the um, group that we talked a little bit. And, uh, but then, you know, fast forwarding, I was thinking about it, just trying to remember some things. And I was like, uh, my last, so my last season, um, the I came home from Europe and I, my last race was going to be the San Francisco Grand Prix. And I remember that him and I, I was on telecom, obviously T-Mobile. And um, we, we actually trained for like two weeks together. He was on, I don't even remember the teams now, <laughs> what, the, what the sponsors were, but we wrote, we trained together in Austin for like two weeks and just kind of back a little bit normal. Didn't really talk about, we've never really talked about that together so um so it kind of just went by the wayside i guess you'd say but yeah I, I i wasn't really i didn't really know you know my first real memory of lance obviously i knew him who he was and i can think back to being a junior um but it was in 1991 you know i was uh on the junior national team and the junior worlds that year were in colorado springs so it was like a really big deal I wanted to make the national team to ride the worlds and I'd spent the spring over in Denmark. I graduated early and I'd spent uh, three months over in Denmark racing in France. And I felt like I'd really kind of proven myself. I actually won the Danish uh, Junior Worlds trials. So if I was Danish, I would have been on their uh, Junior Worlds team. Uh, but that wasn't good enough. The national team coach, um, he told me before the uh, start of the trials, the Junior Worlds trials, which were on a sort of a garden of the gods like a portion of what the world's course was going to be but not the whole circuit he just came up to me and to my face he said if you don't win today you're not on the team and I mean I was like pissed I was like you know I felt like I'd proven myself in France and some other races and so I went on to win that race by five and a half minutes uh solo so but going back to my kind of first uh, interaction ever really with Lance was I, I went back to the Olympic training center. I was staying there and I uh, took a shower and stuff up at the dorms. And I went down to the, you know, they had that awesome uh, mess hall or whatever you want to call it, you know, with all the sponsors, uh, peanut m and things in there for us. And uh, I walked in and he was sitting at a table in a booth with a coach or with some other guys. I don't know. And I heard this guy, hey, and I looked over and it's him and he's like, you that little kid or whatever he called it, just kicked everyone's ass out there. And I was like, yeah, he's like, hell of a ride, man. Good job. I'm like, I was like, all right, man. You know, Lance Armstrong, just congratulations. So that was like my first sort of interaction meeting with him. That was like uh, 1991 sometime. You, Bobby Julik, George Hincappy, um, Marty Jemison was right. You know, there are a lot of guys in that era um, beyond Lance. Uh, some strong personalities too, looking back, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, you mentioned those names and you think about the different, uh, um, like Marty, I always think about how him and I were roommates and um, at the Worlds in Norway. And, um, you know, we did some spring trips, those different groups of guys. We used to go to Europe in the spring and race, you know, big races like the Bergamasca, which was the big lead in for the pro teams doing um, the Tour of Italy. So we got to race against some really big riders. And yeah, that we definitely had a, a, a strong group, you know, it took a few years to, for us, like myself, to start intermingling with the older riders like Bobby Julek or Lance. If you look back on American racing, that was sort of the race where a lot of you guys uh, became prominent. You know, if you looked at the results, uh, as I recall, Bobby Julek was fifth as a 19-year-old in 1991, you know, in Tour de Pont. And uh, Lance, of course, went on and won the event a couple of years. And, you know, you showed well and uh, George won stages. And you guys were young guys at that time, 22, yeah. 23 years old. What the, you know, what did that event do is from a confidence builder, noting that you had teams like PDM at that time and um, Panasonic, you know, some of these big, they're the top teams in the world coming over the U.S. and competing. What did that do for your confidence? How did that kind of carry over and set up into that Lance era uh, for you guys? No, that was definitely being in the national team to, you know, if you think back like the order of events or the the way the seasons would lay out, but being able to make that team and be in the sort of, um, sort of pot. Um, like I mentioned before, we had kind of always like that spring trip. Uh, and then we would come back and, and ride. I, I rode, uh, I wrote it two years, so, but the first year was so abbreviated. You know, I got hurt, uh, broke my pelvis. The first stage was Wilmington to Delaware. It was like a half stage, I think. And then the evening stage was a team time trial, and I got hurt out warming up on the course. And then the next season, um, thinking through the years here. So, you know, that's when I was like, I really felt like that year, I mean, it's easy to say now, but I had such a great uh, Bergamasca. I was in the front group with guys like, I think Eugenie Verzine went on to win the Giro that year, and I was placing in the top 10 on their, their climbing stages. And I felt really prepared for Tour de Pont that year. And, you know, we all, that was a really competitive group too. I mean, if you look at the guys, they've all had career, long careers. And so, we definitely motivated each other. You know, I always, when I looked that year, that was the year um, George made his pro contract, you know, 93, he turned pro in 94. And, you know, you, you couldn't help but compare yourself to that. And, you know, getting hurt that in Tour de Pont that year was a big upset for me. I felt like it really set me back like a whole year. And so the following year, I had a really good, I think I was 17th overall in like the second top amateur rider in the overall Tour de Pont. And I, um, you know, that was a good segue with some other results that led into my, my sort of pro contract. When you're able to really drill it on a climb and, um, you know, a lot of the top pros will say that if you can hold your threshold at a 15 minute pace, you're kind of at a Superman level, maybe up to 20 minutes. And you said when you were the at your fittest, so maybe this was uh, 2001, 2000, right around that that time frame. Uh, going 20 minutes, you know, on a major climb in the Tour de France, you were able to hold it with anybody, and you felt that physiologically at that time, and 
and just the way you know you were conditioned mentally and physically uh you were able to push that you know at that limit what did it take a to get to that level and in physiologically speaking and mentally speaking i think when uh you know when you're in a, a tour de france level race you know it's a different uh, psychology, I think of, of how you're pushing yourself and, uh, you know, look back at that and, and tell me, you know, when you're at your peak form, drilling it and looking at shattering the rest of the Peloton, what that was like. Yeah, I, I, I'd say for the most part, I felt like I had pretty good success in the Tour de France, you know, from, I wrote it six times from 97 to 2002. Um, yeah, I, to think about when I do think about the tour, I definitely think about certain moments and you, you think about, wow, it was six times, three weeks long, but you put a lot into like, wow, that was a really good 20 minutes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it came at a high cost. Like you said, I, I, it's really hard to explain how, yeah, you go 20 minutes, 30 minutes on a climb and you're riding for the team or or riding for yourself, just trying to stay in a group. And um, you destroy yourself, you know, you're, you're, you know, the next day is a flatter stage. And so you can have some time to recover and hopefully be better. But yeah, when you're on like that, it's, it's a great feeling, obviously, but it's, you're so you're so on mentally too focused, like the tour. Uh, I don't want to go too sideways here. But whenever I think about or explain to people like the difference between the Tour of Italy, the Tour de France, and Tour of Spain it's like a tour of Italy you know you get the feel that after a while you kind of know the couple guys who are in contention you know the echelon the winds come the group splits you know later in the race the group starts splitting sooner um, same similar thing in Spain you know and it's very like culture dominant like the Italians obviously get really excited just like we would for the Tour de Pot you know get really fired up but I think the Americans have always adopted the Tour de France as that race for us, you know, it'd be really um, going well. But uh, at the Tour, like, it just, no one gives up. It's like that, uh, you know, they talk about sports, about competing against guys that are the same level, and then it takes so much. It's just, it's a pretty awesome display of, like, when the Tour, when there's a split in the Peloton, you know they were going, it was going all out for a long time and it was very difficult, you know? So it's pretty cool. Like there'll be echelons, there'll be single row guys for like an hour, you know? No one's getting drafted, but nobody quits. There's never a, you know, sit up and, so that that's kind of the intensity of the tour. I also say too, like the battle to be in the first 20 riders is, you can't explain it. You know, you let up a little bit, you're in the back. You just spend, you could spend 30 minutes trying to get to the front. And a lot of guys spend their whole career just literally leaning themselves out back to your point, sometimes for one or two stages that define their career. Yeah. And it, they're not even winning a stage. They're just playing a role. Well, in a uh, way, a way I did that, you know? Yeah, like, exactly. I think of my performance, the team's performance on the day that uh, Lance won Sester Air that year and, you know, my effort on the Galibier, like, brought it down to, like, four or five riders. And you know, that was, like, a 30-minute effort. I think my hurry was 202 for the whole time. 
uh, you know, about five beats below my max or something. Um, but I, yeah, I was on and I had a good day and I've had a couple other days like that. But when you add it up, it's like an hour and a half of efforts that really made big difference in the race. And so when you look back at those uh, defining moments in your career without any individual, you know, uh, adulation on that, or, or uh, is it enough to look back and say, hey, I did my job for the team? And I think that's what, for super domestiques out there, there's not a ton of them, right? I mean, being honest, year to year, there's probably a handful of them that are doing that in the Grand Tours. Uh, so, you know, what did you take away from that in a sort of parting shot in your career, being that super domestique for a couple of years? Well, I think there was a point there, probably 99, like where I'd made, you know, really there was that team aspect that we had and kind of, you know, I must've made a decision there that I was going to take on more of that role of, I mean, I tried to win other races. I had other good results and uh, before the tour or sometimes just after. Um, but I think I'd made it, I must made a decision. It was like, that was kind of like my, my spot, like a, a, in the profession, you know, it's, it kind of goes, it's not so much anymore about, you know, when you're a kid and you're trying to win all these races and you try and you, sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. And it's a lot more competitive at that level. And, you know, I feel like I found a way, a spot to be really beneficial in the team. And I was content with, uh, that role of helping and never really liked the word domestique, but, uh, it's all right. I think you've been pretty honest uh, when people have talked to you about drugs in your era and, and, and what that was. And it's a difficult topic, you know, let's face it, you know, and I think as people look back at, at eras uh, and depending on where testing was even um, in those eras uh, is uh, becomes debatable. You talk to different people within the realms of uh, uh, pro versus amateur and you get varying degrees of opinion. Um, so you know, as you look back on that era, you know, what's something that you can take away or, or that you'd like to share, I think, to uh, uh, people, you know, on, on where that era was and maybe where and how it's uh, helped cycling in any way? Yeah, um, I'm kind of glad you asked that question. It's a little, you know, definitely a difficult question, but I feel like in a way, uh, the lead in here, you kind of allowed me to talk a little bit just a little more about my career, you know, without that, that hanging over. Um, I might've said just in the very beginning here of our conversation, when you, you know, you asked me to start talking about my career in that time, because my first reaction now really is when people ask me about my career, where you're kind of like giving me credit for like, you know, my performances and, and the results we got, but we both know that, you know, they've, erase some of those results from the history books. And um, yeah, and then the doping was a part of it. Uh, so, you know, having gone through the years of, I'd already been retired, but when it kind of came out, it just became evident that, you know, there was doping and who was doing it and what was going on. And uh, see if I can keep my train of thought here. Uh, I think when people initially now give me like credit, like, oh, you're an awesome writer. and you're a pro rider. I, I, I immediately think about the doping, you know, I think, yeah, yeah, but there's this big asterisk, you know, you can't, you definitely can't get around that. And so it's definitely even a, 
black cloud for me, like over my own career, because no one, you know, when I got called in front of the grand jury and I was deposed and you just don't ever think that's going to come to that. Like, I remember when I was going into the grand jury and I was uh, outside the, you know, in Los Angeles somewhere or whatever. I just couldn't believe, I was like, how did I get to this point in my life? I was like, this is terrible. Like it was, it was embarrassing and you, you do regret it. I did regret it, you know, and you regret your decisions, but at the same time, like I said, I've had a lot of time to reflect and it's kind of like, it's my life. It was my story, you know, it was part of the story and where I am today with my family and just all the experience I, experiences I've had, you can't really go back and like fix that and make it better, but you can learn from it. Um, but yeah, definitely, you know, growing up wasn't on my, my agenda at all, man. You know, I look at my kids right now and you think, you know, my son's like 15, he's starting to ride and he, he, he loves lacrosse, you know, and I just was so, I, I like cycling so much. Like it just consumed me at like 14, 15 years old, you know? And, uh, you know, I, I had dreams of wanting to be a pro rider. And so I did, I think back to, I was telling you, I lived in Denmark in 1991 and man, it was so depressing. Like I was by myself. I remember I didn't even have a watch. I'd wake up in the middle of the night. I had no idea what time it was in this room. And I had a great family. They took great care of me, but, but I, even at that time, I was so, I just wanted it so bad, you know, to be a professional rider that I, there was nothing that was going to. I was going to, you know, let get in my way. So um, if I go through the years there, you know, 91 and you kind of like create that path as an amateur doing these races, trying to get recognition. And then you turn pro and as an amateur rider, I won some big races. You know, I won a big stage, uh, mountain stage and tour of Austria. And that's pretty much what got me my pro contract. And, and I didn't know, I'm sure I was racing against guys that were already doing stuff, you know, when I was an amateur, but, uh, it was pretty evident when I turned pro in 95 that something was wrong. I was like, man, I'm, I must have pulled the biggest, uh, you know, what would you call it? Somehow it's like, I don't belong here. I was like, these guys are way better than me. Like this pace, the pace is way different than the amateurs. A lot of that too is just the level of rider, right? The guys filtering through to pro are just like pretty much like you were at the top of your, your national team or your, you know, that age group so they're all like that so it's no longer like a national team of like two really good riders and then maybe filled in and but it's like all top riders but uh it was pretty obvious you know those years it was um definitely evident that you know as the year went on even just that first year it was kind of like 95 i was like what is going on you know and then start to figure out that something's up and then, yeah, just kind of, it's kind of a slow, you know, it became a sort of this slow thing into deciding, you know, like first something like cortisone. Oh, cortisone is, it wasn't even, um, now you would get suspended for that, but back then it was legal. So it's like, you didn't even consider that doping, you know? So you're taking cortisone when you're uh, for inflammation or you might have something happen to your knee or it also helps guys lose weight. And, and then, uh, and then you kind of move on to, oh, here, this, you know, this, um, and I, I knew what I was doing all along. Like, I, I take complete accountability for what I did. I mean, I, I'm not a dummy. Even at 22 or whatever, I was 
I knew what the drugs were, what, you know, what I was doing, what I was choosing to do. So, um, and then I felt like definitely, yeah, the biggest, a big decision was to start taking EPO. So that was, you know, that was a decision that kind of weighed heavily. That to me, that was like crossing the line. You know what I mean? Once you did that, you were like, you're kind of in, you're like in the club. Like that time, you know, I hate to put everyone in the, you know, say everyone was doing, but I'm sorry. Like, and, and I got this question too, when I was, you know, being, uh, like I said, in front of the jury and uh, being deposed, like, I can't tell you what, how I know. I just know I lived in that world. I know, I know what I remember. I know, you know, so. Um, so there's a little bit of almost like a Maritai to that. Like you've, you've heard that in other sports too. And let's, let's not always pick on cycling as much as everybody always does. There's a little bit of a Maritai in, in other sports as well. Yeah. And I, I don't want to downplay it, like try to like push it off and make it yep. all, you know, rosy and okay. I'm just telling you my story. Like, you know, it's a very, it's more gray than it is black and white. Is that a fair assessment with what you know now looking back and knowing that other groups, other individuals are doing it or did it, uh, that it's for the general public, that it's a far more gray area when it gets very specific to physiologies and the way the application of, of certain drugs are. And to your point, certain drugs were not banned that become banned and it's become an evolution as well as fact finding, as well as some of the testing catching up to, you know, some of the things that were banned currently. Yeah, that's Steve. That's tough. Like, yeah, I think it's black and white. Like, we're breaking the rules, you know. As we far were, as the rules go, but I mean, yeah, as far as the drugs them, as far as the drugs lines, themselves we, is what I'm asking. I, yeah, I wasn't thinking about it like that. I was thinking, I'm, I want to beat these guys. I, I know this is what everyone's doing. Like, I want to be competitive. I don't want to be a pro for two years and be done. I mean, that's what it would have been. I would have been done. I mean, I can say that. I would have been. Nobody would have signed me. Yeah. I would have done two years and been done. Um, and. Yeah, and some insight into the the drug, like it wasn't really as glamorous as it sounds either. It became it became almost like a part of the routine. It was like part of the job. It's like, okay, I drink my shake, my protein shake when I get home. I um, I stretch. I do my six hour training ride. I sleep. I nap. I this is what I eat, and it's like, and I take you know, I make sure I'm taking my take whatever I'm taking you know for my preparation of a excuse me of a race you know so not to downplay it again I'm just giving you some insight to like how it just became kind of scary in a way just sort of part of the lifestyle and it was like okay I'm going to prepare for this race I'm going to prepare for this season and that's pretty bad you know that's you think about it like that it's kind of it is a slippery slope you know where guys can really get in trouble with their health and uh, make some really bad decisions. I feel like, um, I feel like I was, you know, definitely I had more, you know, thought about this a lot more after those years, like maybe 10 years ago or so when this came out, I definitely had a lot of, you know, some pretty dark time of like reflecting and really questioning why I made those choices and things like that. But, um, and also just the, the effectiveness like you just don't take you just don't take them and you're like superman like 
that's why I say that it became kind of like the routine. It's almost like you're doing the same efforts, like same suffering. There's the same, but the biggest thing would be, I would, I would say from like a drug like PPO is uh, sustainability of efforts and recovery. Um, Cause I did have races early on where I did okay. Like pretty good performances. My first you know years where I wasn't using EPO and, um, but those were like few and far between. It would take me forever to recover. And I didn't even know, like if I had known, I would have raced like every, like I would have taken three weeks between races to recover and really be ready, you know, so I could at least be competitive for a day or two. Um, but you're still, you still got to do everything right. You know, you still got to be right on your race weight. And it's not like there are these magical things that are just, you know, taking guys that are, you know, terrible riders and making them into these great, great riders. So. Up to you went, you raced at probably 148 to 155 at, you know, at your peak. And uh, you were up to about 200 pounds, some of that muscle. And as in, yeah. in, your, in your point, a little girth. Yeah. Uh, so how, how the hell did you get into that? It's just uh, pretty interesting. I know you got a wrestling background from high school, but what, what attracted you to that? It seems the polar opposite of cycling. Yeah, I don't, uh, when was it? I, I did that pretty soon after I, after I'd stopped racing. Um, somehow I came across this school and I was watching, you know, I was watching the ultimate fighting on TV and figured I'd get a, give a run at, you know, I, I think in the back of my mind, I thought I was going to be like an MMA fighter, you know, after my pro career, but I learned pretty quickly, like, no, nah, that's not, that's not a good career. I, I did, uh, I don't know, five or six years of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. A lot of that was, uh, like you said, I just think my background from high school or junior high of wrestling maybe drew me to that. But I don't, I don't do that much anymore. I stopped a while ago. No, I was just you know, interesting in the uh, interested more in the uh, the thought process of saying, "Hey, I'm going to go from 145 pound uh, climber." To, uh, I, as I, we talked, you and I have talked about this on other times, you know, we've been with each other over the years, but I, I feel like just the last year, I sort of figured out this whole, this whole weight thing, I'd say. Um, Cause yeah, I pretty much my whole life, I've always been like, um, I had to really work to be that light. And I know the guys do too. The current guys, they work really hard to, you know, power to weight is so important. And these guys, they're, man, they are lean and they are, they're small guys and they can put out a lot of power. Um, and we thought we were, I think they're even leaner now and somehow lighter, smaller, but, um, and probably to do with some of the advancements of the ways to do it. Um, and I, man, right after I stopped, I mean, I was like 180 pounds by like November of the first year. I hadn't even been, uh, I hadn't even officially run out of my contract. And so it's, it's, uh, and it's funny here to sit here and talk about weight because I've kind of moved past that. Like that's was such a focus when I race and people be like, why are you always talking about how much you weigh? Like people find that really odd, you know? Like, obviously over the years with my coaching business, you know, I've been coaching since I stopped. And um, so I've had a training studio for like 12 years where we do like, we do indoor cycling. Obviously right now we're not, it's, uh, we're doing live stream. I'm doing live stream classes and you know, I've always written training programs for people. Uh, and, and really a lot of people come to me and they want to lose weight. They're like, Hey, I want to get in shape. That's what a lot of people tell you. 
and, and a big part of that is always wanting to lose weight. And, you know, I, I look back over the last year, about a little over a year, I've been studying fasting. And when I say fasting, it's, that's kind of a scary word because it gets people like, whoa, I don't want to like not eat. What are you talking about? Um, so I've kind of called mine like primal eating frequency, you know, like low eating frequency. That's really what I ultimately coach people into. And that's pretty simple. You know, it's like one, one meal, two meals a day, and then big periods of time, you know, between your meals and even a, the occasional longer fast, 24, 48 hours, something like that. But I just feel like we were doing that. Even I even did it in wrestling, you know, when I was a kid and we just did it wrong. We, and then looking at the pros, um, you know, definitely as, as an amateur, I mean, I raced at like 165, 170 pounds. And then when I turned pro, I lost, you know, 15, 20 pounds. So I, I just remember we, we had some aspects there of like I coach with my fasting now, but we just did it really poorly. And we kind of sabotaged ourselves. And I look back and I'm almost mad I didn't have this knowledge because it would have been so much easier, like a, not easier, but the method would have been better because, man, a lot of time you're just thinking about food and you're, you know, that the idea of dieting and cutting calories to me now with what I know with the fasting is just a horrible way to lose weight. With that in mind, and you're looking at, uh, you know, going from 199, which is what you were, I guess, 18 months ago, and now 165, sandwiched in there was an Ironman and a half Ironman. So obviously, you've got, uh, in a good way, an obsession on working out, but also an obsession on kind of keeping refined as a active retired athlete, quote unquote, you know? Yeah, trying to, I mean, like, like I said, I th I've never stopped working out, you know, over the years, I I've always been active five, six days a week. I swim a lot. I've always been swimming, uh, done different things, jujitsu, hockey, running, um, cycling, obviously. Uh, but yeah, the weight thing just kind of crept on me and it started bothering me because it just seemed like every year or no, it's, they say like, you can track like 10 years in that, that weight creep, you know, and you look and you're like, wow, how did I all of a sudden, you don't put on 10 pounds all at once. You put it on over the course of several years and it just starts to become your new set weight, you know? So, um, I use those, that I actually signed up for the Ironman because I was fed up with my weight. And again, I had that mindset of like when I was a pro, oh, I'll do all this training and it'll just take care of itself, you know? And well, one, I don't have all this time for all this training. So I really didn't up my training that much. And at the end of the day on that Ironman, I, I ended up doing it at like 195 pounds. I'm like, what? Is, at the Ironman, I'm like, you idiot. <laughs> like during the run, I'm like, I can't believe you. You didn't lose more weight. What were you thinking? You know, you got to tote this around now for four hours on this run. Um, so the, the between that and the half Ironman, I made some big changes, and that's that's sort of where I discovered the fasting. I do have a funny story about Jens, real quick. Well, there you go. Well, the end of the 2001 tour when um, the last stage and Zabel was just a little out of winning the green jersey, like uh, the sprint jersey, you know, and uh, 
Stuart O'Grady, I think it was Stuart O'Grady was the teammates with Jens was in the green jersey and there were intermediate sprints and then there were the finish. And it's a, the last day is a hard day when there's unfinished business because, you know, the riders sort of, there's, there's like the, the, the rules of the riders too, right? Like, are we going to sprint? Because usually it's just a ceremony and no one sprints and they just do the points on the finish line. And uh, our sponsor had already come over to our bus before the stage start and there was a green Pinarello in our bus for the awards. And so... Jens came by our bus because he's German and he knows the guys and he kind of peeks his head and he kind of wants to get the mood. And, you know, we're not making any deals, but he wants to know what's kind of the mood of the guys, right? He literally walks on the bus, sees the green bike and says something in the German probably to do with F you guys and storms off our bus because he knew we were going to sprint all the points and the finish and Zabel ended up winning the green jerseys. Well, thanks, Kevin. I think, you know, the, the final question here is, uh, you know, what is cycling meant for you? And when you have to, uh, you know, you coach, you've been involved in and out of the sport, you were a pro, you've got kids now that cycle, you know, and in these uh, trying times here where the bike seems to be more relevant than ever, what does it mean to you? Uh, well, that's that's a little tough question because like you're saying these times i mean it's it's definitely i'm in the same boat i think with the rest of everyone just working through and obviously everyone wants to get through this uh this period and stay healthy and you know do the right thing so a lot of you know my business is not <laughs> is not doing great you know it's way down and um so it's not like it's but I see too that I see that cycling right now, it just seems like it's, you know, everyone's look, trying to look, which I love to see people are looking after their health. And it's great to see a, a moment of slowdown where people are actually, you know, it does seem like there's a little rebirth of cycling here, of um, the interest, you know, especially at the level of like health and just activity of family. So um, I kind of look at this. I hope, I hope we all do knock on wood, like a, kind of like a temporary thing of you got to work through it but I feel fortunate that um you know I came out of cycling and as you know I've worked with you with with company groups like Mellis Sports and um I did some work early on with you know like Trek Travel and Bell Sport Vacations and I definitely feel fortunate that I've been able to string together a continued career doing something that um that I, you know, I enjoy. So. It's been great catching up with you. And, uh, you know, once again, uh, good health to your family right now during this time. And uh, appreciate you coming on the maiden voyage here for the outer line. Uh, yeah, and, thanks. Uh, great to be here. Thanks, Steve. Yep. And the same to you and whoever might listen to this.